on Monday night? Where were you on Monday night when the storm came through? Sue and I were coming back from Allendale Monday evening where the storm was the most intense, at least that's what we saw on the radar. We were traveling up 131. The sky was electrifying. Every two to three seconds, the sky was being lit up with bolts of lightning. It illuminated the darkness of the evening and it was the best light show that I've seen in a long time. It was awesome. And it demonstrated the awesomeness of God and the majesticness of who he is. Where were you when the storm struck? That storm that we witnessed on Monday night, I don't believe compares at all with what the people of Israel experienced on Mount Sinai when this covenant was given to Moses and the people of Israel and to humanity. I don't know if you noticed in the text, but it's very interesting that there was lightning, there was thunder, there was dark clouds, there was trumpet noise, there was smoke, there was fire, there was even a violent earthquake. And if you take your Bibles out with me and turn to Exodus chapter 20, I want you to notice how the people respond. As they circled this mountain where this great covenant was given, I want you to notice how the people respond in chapter 20, verse 18 and 19. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but don't have God speak to us for we will die. I want you to notice here that this Mosaic covenant is not a fuzzy covenant at all. This is a thunderous lightning-striking, earth-shattering experience that the people saw and heard and they felt. They said, no, no, Moses, we've seen enough of God. You speak on our behalf. This Mosaic Covenant, friends, is a fascinating covenant that I believe most people today miss. In fact, the majority of the people in our culture today, if you ask people on the street about this covenant, they will use this covenant as the covenant that they are using to try and appeal to God's holiness and righteousness, and we miss it. We miss the reason and the very existence as to why God gave this Mosaic covenant. It is a spectacular display of God's majesty that we sang about earlier and also of his love, but especially, can I suggest to you that it is a revelation of his holiness that we're going to see in the scriptures from this beginning of the Mosaic Covenant here in Exodus 19 and 20 all the way through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament in fact, the Apostle Paul is going to speak about this covenant many times over. And for us to define it and understand it, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament passage of Scripture, Galatians, 
chapter 3, verses 21 and 25. Galatians chapter 3. This is a splendid display of God here in Exodus 19 and 20 that we read, but Paul has much to say about this covenant as we see here in the book of Galatians and we're also going to see in other passages of Scripture. Look at Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. Is the law, the law that we just read, Ten Commandments. By the way, the Ten Commandments, they are an umbrella of some 633 commandments. We many times look at these Ten Commandments and we say, these are the top ten. They are, but they really reveal the holiness of God. And God gave over 600 commandments to the people of Israel. So when we talk about the law here, let's think about not just the ten but all of the specific laws that we find recorded in Exodus and Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, the key word for Leviticus is holiness. Holiness of God is revealed in this Mosaic covenant. So Paul says here in Galatians 3, verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart righteousness then righteousness could certainly have come by the law. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Verse 21, I want you to notice a couple of characteristics of this covenant. Number one, the law is not opposed to the Abrahamic covenant that we saw last week. The Abrahamic covenant does not go against the law covenant that's being given here. For example, watch this. Let's do a timeline here. Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Our timeline will go this way. We go from left to right. We read left to right. In Genesis 12, we have the Abrahamic covenant. What's the Abrahamic covenant? It is a covenant of faith. That is, we are saved by faith. We put our faith in what God says. Abraham believed the promise of God. That is, that through your seed, Abraham, you're 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. But through your seed, I'm going to be faithful to my word. You can trust my word. And the Bible says, Abraham did not waver in his faith. He's the man of faith. He is the example of faith. We are saved by faith. That's the Abrahamic covenant. That's Genesis 12. 430 years later, we come to Moses. Moses is going to receive the Mosaic covenant. What Paul is saying here is the Mosaic Covenant is not going to trump the Abrahamic Covenant. It's not going to take that away. We see as we study the Scriptures a progressive of Revelation. The progressive of Revelation feeds on itself. It builds. We see God revealing himself as the ages unfold. God's clock of the ages is all about revealing who he is. And these covenants do not fight against each other. Paul is saying they work together. Faith and the law. The law is going to say, do this, don't do this. 
Well, wait a minute, Paul. That sounds like it contradicts faith. And Paul is going to say, no. The Abrahamic covenant is not opposed to the Mosaic covenant. The list of do's and don'ts here is not going to take away faith. Notice the second characteristic here. The law in verse 21, Paul says, For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Paul is going to show us that the law cannot impart righteousness. The law cannot give us the righteousness that we need. Here's the mistake that most people give. So how are you going to get to heaven? How are you going to stand before a holy God? And they will say things like this. Well, I'm taking and I'm being obedient to the Ten Commandments. You're doing so good. I don't murder. I don't cheat. I don't steal. My neighbor does, but I don't. And they use it as a standard of their own righteousness. Paul is going to say, we can't use the law for our own righteousness, as we're going to see here in a couple of minutes. How can we stand, friends, before a holy and a righteous God in our own righteousness? Every religion, every religion will put its emphasis on our good works. You don't believe it? I've got a number of books in my library that I pulled off of the shelf. These are different religions of the world, and I'm not going to let you know what the religions are because they're all in the same boat. But I'm, I'm going to pick on one because one will reveal all of them. Okay? The Islamic faith. How are people saved in the Islamic faith? And all of the Islamic faith and these basically have the same theme, and here's what it is. In the back of these little books... There is a um, description of their belief system. Here's what it is. Salvation. Believe that God judges people by their deeds or works. Deny that a person can attain acceptance with God on the basis of faith alone. Religious justification is only a hope. That is, I hope this is true. I wish it to be true, but it's not a certainty. Do not agree with the Christian conviction that man needs to be redeemed. The Quran promises that those who die during a holy war are martyrs who gain an immediate entrance into paradise. Basically, if you do the right good works, you'll be accepted in God's sight. Here's what they believe. You put your good works over here, you put your bad works over here, and if your good works outweigh your bad works, you're in and you're accepted into eternity, into paradise. That's not only the Islamic religion. That's basically the religion of all of them. All of man's religion is, what do I need to do to appeal to God's holiness? Paul is saying here that the law cannot produce that. Oh, we do that with each other, friends. Just think for a moment how we do that with each other. I will accept you if you be nice to me. Right? And if you're not nice to me, I'll cut you out. I will accept you if you do good to me, and if you do good to me, I'll do good to you, and we'll be friends, right? We do that with one another. Why? Because our theology, our thinking is this one. That's what we believe with God. And I can somehow appeal to God. God, if I can just do enough good works, maybe, maybe, just maybe you'll accept me and let me in. We do that with each other because we do that with our holy God. 
The Ten Commandments cannot impart righteousness. What's the purpose then of the Ten Commandments? And here's the million dollar question. What is the purpose of the law? And I want you to notice the third characteristic here that Paul gives in verse 22. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The third characteristic here is that the scriptures declare that we are prisoners to sin. The Bible from beginning to end teaches that humanity cannot save themselves. Sin has come into the world and the greatest need that we have is to be saved from ourselves. Not Lucifer. Not the powers out there. The greatest sinner on planet Earth is me. And you probably know the greatest sinner. If you haven't come to the reality to say the greatest sinner on planet Earth is me, that's why the Ten Commandments were given. Watch how this unfolds and how it unpacks. We become a prisoners to ourselves in our sin. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they basically said, God, I'm the center of creation. I don't need you. I will do it myself in sin as I, me, myself. However you want to describe it, it's all about me. And the center of the human soul needs to be saved from itself. It is pathetically pitchy, the human soul. Are you familiar with that phrase? Some of you chuckled and some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Because you don't watch American Idol? Oh, come on, you've probably seen American Idol, haven't you? Randy Johnson, he uses this phrase in fact, I was going to show you a clip of 40 seconds of him using this word pitchy. Because for 40 seconds, there's about seven or eight people that he says, you're just really pitchy. Well, what does that mean? He was judging their performance, and if you're pitchy, that means that you're not on pitch. Have you ever heard a singer go sharp or heard a singer go flat? Most gals are sharp and most guys were flat. Okay, when we sing... We're pitchy. The pitch is not on. It basically means we're not on the center of the note. And so being pathetically pitchy in our singing might be one thing, but it really describes our soul. Our soul is pathetically pitchy. We have been set off course. God is the center. God is the reason for all of this. And it's not about you. And it's not about me. Well, that's encouraging. I come to church and I want to have, you know, I want to know that it's all about me. It's not, friends. The doctrine of sin in the scriptures is really offensive to us, isn't it? Well, maybe it's not. Maybe it's, what is the purpose of the law? Keep your finger here in Galatians. We're going to come back. But I want you to notice Romans chapter 3. There's a powerful passage here that we want to memorize and we want to go back and we want to read this on a daily basis maybe. These two verses, I believe, friends, are so important for us to grab hold of to understand what's the purpose of the law. 
And here in Romans chapter 3, he, Paul lays out the theology of the Christian faith, what, what we believe about the law and what it does for us. In chapter 3, verse 19, now we know that the, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced before God. The law was given to silence us. Have you ever been guilty of doing something wrong? Do you have a word for what you just did? Maybe mom and dad come to you and say, hey, do you have a word for you? And we try and come up with excuses. Well, I did it because of... And eventually we get to the point where we just have to be quiet because we're, <laughs> we're guilty. <laughs> That's what the law does. It basically puts our hand over our mouth and says, we are guilty. Look at the second characteristic here that Paul gives here in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. He says in verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. The law was given to hold us accountable to God's holiness. Friends, if we're trying to keep the Ten Commandments, there's hopefully going to be a day when you're going to come to the point where you're going to say, I can't do this anymore. And I put my hand over my mouth and I say, God, I'm guilty. The law was given to show us our unrighteousness and to show the contrast between our unrighteousness and God's holiness and righteousness. The law is holy because he's holy. Grab this, friends. Don't miss this. This theology, this point is probably the most important theological point that you will understand or you will miss. If you miss it, you're going to miss a whole lot about God here, and you might miss eternal life. So notice here that Paul tells us that this is a teaching that gives us that sense of guilt. Don't believe me? Keep your finger here in Romans and look at Matthew chapter 5. Look at Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, people, you know, I hear people talk about the Sermon on the Mount and, oh, it's just so lovely and it's so wonderful and it, they kind of give the impression that the, the Sermon on the Mount is this warm fuzzy that Jesus was speaking here and there are some warm fuzzies in this passage, granted. But I want you to notice what Jesus does here in this teaching that many times we miss. I want you to notice here that in chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus is going to take two commandments, two ten commandments. He's going to lift him out of the ten, and he's going to talk about murder and adultery. And here's what he's going to say in Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. That's what we read this morning from Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, now watch what Jesus is going to do. I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. He's basically taking the law and saying the law is not about outward circumstances. The law is about your heart. Have you ever been angry with somebody? You're a murderer. It's basically what he's saying. Really? Now let me put you on the spot this morning. And I want you to vote. Press your soul to vote. Have you ever been angry with somebody? And are you a murderer this morning? Are there any murderers in the house? About half of you. 
No, I'm serious. Half of you aren't raising your hand. I'm not supposed to raise hands in church. Come on. Press your soul. Don't be warm fuzzy with your soul here. Okay, if you're not a murderer, let me ask you this. Go down a little bit further. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, Jesus says, do not commit adultery. I've never done that. I've been faithful to my wife all the time. I didn't have sex before marriage. I was a virgin. I can honestly tell you that. I have not committed adultery. Really. Look at the next verse. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Ouch. Do we have any adulterers in the house today? About half of us. And that's pretty typical about Christian faith. Most people don't see themselves as being sinners. If you don't need a savior, you, if you don't see your sin, you don't need a savior. That's what the law was given for. The law was given to show us our sin. Jesus is talking and teaching here that sin is not an inner issue and not an outer issue. It is an inner issue. Friends, if you could wash your sin away because it's on the outside, I would take baths every day. And you could baptize me every day. And I wish it was that easy. But I have to be honest with you. As your pastor, this strikes home to me. This is my heart. And I hope that doesn't pop your bubble. But the reality is, the gospel will not be good news to us if we don't understand how deep our sin goes. Yeah, it's good news. Really? How good is it? Well, you can't have good news until you have bad news. And the bad news is, or at least what the Bible teaches, is that we are sinners to the core. A number of weeks ago, we had our granddaughter, Lily, stay with us. Lily is the daughter of Brian and uh, Lauren. And so we watched her for a 24-hour period. And how old is she, Suze? 15 months? Yeah, she's just over a year and a half. She's starting to understand uh, yes and no, and she's starting to understand what it means to be obedient. But she stayed with us for about 24 hours, and I told my wife, jokingly, I said to her, I think this child is about the closest thing to deity that I have seen in childhood, in child rearing. We put her to bed at 9.15. She didn't cry. She reached for the bed. Literally, she reached for the bed. We covered her. She didn't make a peep. She fell asleep. She slept for 12 hours. We did the same thing. We laughed. She usually sleeps 12, what, 13 hours on a pretty regular basis. She wakes up. She doesn't cry. She didn't cry for us. She was happy. We go in there. She's playing with her toys. Hi, Lily. How are you? You know, she rattles off her, her phrases. We put her in the high chair. She's babbling to us. She's got things to say. We don't know what she's saying, but she's babbling. And I just jokingly said to Brian and Lauren, I said to Lauren, I think you've got a perfect baby. She says, oh, no. She says, you don't know Lily. Just this last week, talk to my wife. This is a true story. She was spending the day with Lily. They went to the mall. They were playing at the playground. 
perfect little Lily was told, Lily, don't leave this area, because she had tried about two or three times. And Grandma went and said, Lily, you have to stay in this area. Okay. So she played for a while, and then she'd try and sneak out. She did this a number of times, and finally, she was able, and Grandma had her eye on her, on, on what she was doing. She finally left the area looking back at Grandma. No, I'm serious. Looking back at Grandma, and then she darted. She knew exactly what she was doing, right? What does Grandma do? Grandma goes after her. Of course. But what else does Grandma do? Brian, uh, last night, she's telling the story now to Brian and Lauren. Brian, I had to spank your daughter for the first time. Oh, really, Brian says. Tell me the story. Because we've told our kids, we believe in spanking. And if your kids are going to be in our household, that's just the way we parent. <laughs> okay? Because when they're at this age, the sin nature is going to show itself. If we don't deal with the sin nature at 15 months, wait until they turn 15, wait until they turn 18, wait until they're 21. If you don't deal, if our theology of the sin nature is not understood, it will affect our parenting skills. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Friends, that is not a promise. That is a warning. If you train up a child in the way that he or she wants to go, and you let that sin nature go where it wants to go, and they become the rooster, nester, whatever you, they're the center of your family, and they make the decisions, and they decide that this is what it's going to be, if you don't confront that early on, I guarantee you that life will be hellish later on when they get older. I'm just telling you, this is the theology of what we, the Christian faith, believe or do. Most difficult thing for anybody to get into heaven is because of their goodness and their righteousness. <laughs> Jesus confronted the religious leaders because you know what they thought? They were patting themselves on the back and saying, we carry out the Ten Commandments. The law was given to show us our sin. If you go back to Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to go through these very quickly because of time. I know some of you are getting nervous because it's past your lunch, and we can sit through two hours of a movie, and we don't have to even go to the bathroom for two hours. But when it comes to church, boy, you've got to be done at 12 o'clock, Pastor, because if not, I'm going to be upset. Be upset. You'll get over it. Look at the fourth characteristic, and I hope that you know I, I say that graciously. I don't mean to, to do that in a rude sense, so uh, I want to be gracious with that thinking, because there is that thinking. Number four, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, the Bible tells us, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. The law leads us to Christ. If we're a murderer, if we're an adulterer, if we need a savior, then I've got good news. Is there any doctors in the house physically? Is there any doctor in the house that will tell my soul I've got a savior? Will anybody tell me that I am a wretched mess? I am a pathetically pitchy soul, and I need somebody to save me. Is there anybody that will tell me? I am here, my friends, to tell you the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died as a holy man for you, and he paid the penalty for all of the punishments that you and I deserve, he placed it on his back, and he took our place. And that's the story of the gospel. 
That's the story of the Mosaic Covenant. It's not the wealthy who need a doctor. It's not the healthy or the wealthy, but the sick. In number 5, in verse 25, the law has been fulfilled fully in Christ. Jesus Christ was the Holy One of Heaven. He's the only one. That's why all of these other religions, let's be honest with them. Let's put them where they belong. They are attempts to please a holy God, and they will always come up short for all of us to sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus Christ has become our Savior. And so, friends, I give you good news today. If you're a pathetically pitchy soul and you need somebody to save you, some of you have been sitting in church for years and you haven't bent the knee to Christ because you're believing in your religiosity. You believe that you can go through a system of things that I do, hoops to try and jump through, and then if I jump through the hoops, if I get there, God will hopefully be gracious because I've done enough good works. It's not going to cut it. That's the reality. And I hope and pray, friends, that each of you will know without a doubt that you leave this place having heard the gospel, that Jesus Christ did it for you. He is the only way that you will be able to stand before a holy and a righteous God. He will either one day be your judge or he will be your savior. Which will it be? I have a savior who has washed my sins away by the blood that he spilt there at the cross of Calvary. And I'll close with this last thought. Oswald Chambers said it this way. You will never cease to be the most amazed person on earth at what God has done for you on the inside. On the inside. We look at sunsets. We look at flowers like tulips. We look at mountains and rivers and stars. And we stand amazed, don't we? He's an awe God. Until we see his oneness reach into our soul, Oswald Chambers says, will be the day that we see the greatest oneness of God in his holiness and in his love for you and for me. I am just so, so thankful that Jesus Christ has paid all of my sin and your sin as well. It's good news. Come to the Lord Jesus. Come and believe and put your faith on him and then work out this pathetically pitchy soul that we have. That's what salvation is. It's sanctifying us that we become like Christ. It's following him on a daily basis, not coming to church. If it were this easy, but it's not. It's easy because he's died in our place. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In awe of your grace, O oh Father, save a pathetically pitchy soul like me. Please, O oh God, I look to you and you alone. Let's bow our hearts and our heads in a word of prayer, shall we?